Uh, if you're new to Downtown Prez, we are studying through the book of Romans. This is a wonderful book of the New Testament, very rich, very dense. And we're, uh, we're finishing up chapter 11 this morning. So we'll pick up in verse 33, and I'll direct your attention there. If you don't have a Bible, you can just uh, follow in the bulletin. I, uh, I came across something this weekend about freegans and freeganism. Not vegans, freegans. And uh, I looked this up on Wikipedia, so of course this will all be accurate, as is everything on the internet. And uh, it says, freeganism is the practice of reclaiming and eating food that has been discarded. Freegans and freeganism are often seen as part of a wider anti-consumerist ideology. Uh, This post goes on to talk about freegan beliefs, which is, that's funny to say that, freegan beliefs. I'll tell you their freegan beliefs. Freeganism is based on the idea of anti-consumerism and that there's little, need, uh, there's little need to purchase new goods because of the waste that society has produced and because they want to help the environment. And then it goes on to say they believe that the, that the general public greatly misuses resources because of the ideals and activities of mass consumerism and do not want to contribute to the consumerist society. And here's the thing, a lot of people, you know, even in this room would say, well, I agree with a lot of that. I mean, I do think that that we're very wasteful and just a ton of the world's consumption is, you know, in our our neck of the woods and uh, that that everything about that's not good. And we'd agree with that. So at that level, we agree with the idea. But then it says they believe it. Did you catch that? It says they believe this and are taking it to its conclusion. So, like, I believe this, but because I believe it, I'll get my supper from a dumpster tonight, or I'll get it from behind a grocery store tonight. The reason I bring that up is uh, this passage is really unique, and maybe I'm saying that every week, but this is the end of chapter 11, and, and virtually any study, any book, any commentary that you would look at about Paul's letter to the Romans, it would say... This is a transition in the book. And just painting with a broad brush, everything that's gone before chapters 1 through 11 is very doctrine heavy. And when I say heavy, I mean it is, it's dense and rich and amazing. There's a place elsewhere in the New Testament where Peter, the Apostle Peter, he says, yeah, sometimes I don't understand everything that Paul writes, which is like strangely comforting that an apostle is going, yeah, I don't get him sometimes. Very dense, very full. And, you know, he starts off, and we've said this, I think, every week. He starts off with the bad news. The bad news about our condition. And then there's this manifesto about the good news. The gospel. And, uh, and he's taking us into some hard stuff. The last few weeks, we looked at chapters 9 through 11, and it deals with things that touch on ethnic Israel, the Jews, people like actually descended from Abraham, and God's saving plan in the Jews, but then it gets into, well, then where do the Gentiles fit into that? And is this two things or one thing? And it's, it's weighty. But you get to this point, and it's interesting. I, when, as I've been preaching, I've actually... I need to confess a mistake I've been making. Just one. Is that... Uh, no, I think it, it points, I've said, you know, you can almost see Paul looking up from his pen, but Romans actually is... He's not doing the writing. 
the physical writing. At the, at the end of Romans, in chapter 16, there's this great verse. It, it says, I, Tertius, who write this, send my greetings. And he's the scribe. He's, he's the guy that's transcribing what Paul dictates. And, and it's interesting. You may or may not have had this in Romans had Paul been writing his own words because it's as if he has said all this stuff and the, the weight of the fact hits him that these are not just concepts. You know, these are not just cool ideas. This is real. And the next section of the book is him fleshing it out. It's him applying that, you know, if all this is true, therefore, here's what it means in your life, in family, society, your, uh, your, your view of the, the civic leaders over you, hospitality, whatever. If you've been craving some application, buckle in. And we may not like all of them because the gospel touches everything. But at that bridge in between, Tertius, the scribe, writes down what Paul does. Um, it would be healthy if this happened in all our hearts, but, but in God's mercy, He lets us hear what happened to a man when He essentially is saying, these aren't just concepts. This is true. Uh, Romans 11, beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, we ask that you would dig out our ears and open them up so that your words go in. And um, we pray, Father, not only for ourselves, we pray for the, the, the person sitting next to us, the person sitting behind us, that you wouldn't just be merciful to us as individuals, that you'd be merciful to us as a group, as an assembly as a room full of people that need you, whether we feel that or not, and that our hearts crave you, whether we would acknowledge that or not, and that we hear what you're saying. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Just, uh, well, there goes my bookmark. But uh, j- just a few minutes ago, we did something that we do every week, and we, we, we had a confession of sin and you know, the, the Bible doesn't lay out, here's the exact order that a, that a Christian worship sh- uh, service should follow, but the order that we use is pretty time-tested and it's pretty old and it's not perfect. But, uh, but yeah, we think that one thing that's part of the back and forth between God and His people is that we own why we need a Savior. You know, that we verbalize and own ways that we haven't loved God and we haven't loved people. And you know, we do silent confession first and then we invite you to pray together. So you know the drill. Let me ask you this. If you've been coming for any length of time, when it gets to the part for the silent confession before we pray together, have you ever felt like you're saying the same thing every week? 
you know, that if you're the person that struggles with anger, that, it's, that you always confess anger first. Or if you struggle with a bad mouth, you always confess the bad mouth. Well, that's appropriate. I mean, that's right and good to do it. But do you ever feel like, I just kind of think there are probably some things I ought to be owning that I'm not thinking to own. I, I want to throw out one to you. Th- this is an old book from, uh, from our house. And it's an old copy of the, the, the doctrinal confession that our church holds to, that our denomination holds to. It's the Westminster Confession of Faith and, uh, and catechisms. Now, if you don't know what that term means, a catechism is used in all kinds of church traditions, Protestant, Catholic, and it's a teaching device that's in a question-answer format. And in the larger catechism, there's a section about the Ten Commandments. And so it'll ask you what the commandment is, and then it'll ask you, now, what would it look like to obey that command? And then it'll ask you, what would it look like to disobey that command? Like, what sins are forbidden? And I, I was struck by the answer to, what are ways that we disobey the first command of the Ten Commands? And just as a review, the first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. So it starts out with stuff that, you, you know, would be obvious, like don't worship idols. If you're a Christian and there's a shrine with a statue in your house, you, you want to get rid of that. Atheism would be, you know, those, those are like the first things listed. That, that doesn't surprise you. Now, this is written in the 1640s. A lot of it sounds stilted. And you get to the end, and it says, oh, yeah, and, and there's one other way to break that command. Ascribing the praise of any good we either are or have or can do to idols, ourselves, or any other creature. Now, we, we all just heard the passage, and really where I want to hone in is verse 36, that from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. That's the doxology. And in a room like this, I don't think it's too hard to find folks that when we say from Him are all things, that we go right on. We couldn't make the universe. We, we can't create anything. And maybe even say, we can't save ourselves. From Him are all things but then through Him. Like, do, do I really believe that what I have and what happens to me is not ultimately through my hard work and through my diligence and through me being on top of things, but all things are through Him and to Him that Everything and every occurrence ultimately is not unto my fulfillment or my enjoyment or for me to be perceived in the way that I want to craft the perception, but that all things are to Him. And and I'll tell you, that is a game changer on thinking about one's sin because I go long, long stretches without confessing I think that a lot of the good things I have are through me working hard. They're not through you. And from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. So let's, let's dig into this a little bit more. Um, 
we, we could just, it, it's not hard to break down. I just really want to take, almost use the, the prepositions as the, the dividers. Uh, he's the source from Him. He's the means. God is the means to all things through Him. God is the goal to Him are all things. All right? Let's start with the source, that, that all things are from Him. Some of you may have studied some philosophy, or maybe you like to read that kind of thing anyway. And I know a few of you majored in philosophy, which is impressive. One of the oldest philosophical questions is, why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there something rather than nothing? And the biblical answer is very vivid and very clear. It's because God. And that's not explained at the beginning. It's just stated that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From Him are all things. And now, when we say all things, what do we mean? Does, does all things mean sin? Is sin from God? Now, this is, this is one of these important times where we've got to say, Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture's adamant. No, sin is not from Him. He doesn't create sin. When, especially in the New Testament, when you see the phrase, all things, it means one or two things. It means created things, the created universe, heavens and the earth. But then the gospel, like the supernatural things that Paul has been writing about for these 11 chapters of how a holy, holy, holy God brings really unholy people to himself and reconciles them to himself and loves them and adopts them and changes them. Those are the things. So think about that. All things are from God. Now this is where I feel like just you know going uh, over the top preacher on you and just start talking about you know, galaxies and nebula and um, ravines and mountains and, and ocean depths. And of course, all that's in the Bible and all that's in the Psalms. I, I, I want to think of just maybe one thing that, I know, could help us experience, wow, all good things are from God. And some of this is just coming out of my own preferences, but something that comes to mind is humor. This past summer, Dana and I celebrated our 20th anniversary, and uh, that's not the humorous thing I want to point out, but the, uh, uh, the, the day of our anniversary... Uh, because we must do this, you know, I posted on Facebook about it, and I I posted this picture of her that I just love. I took it almost exactly a year ago. We were in another city. We got to have dinner with one of her just lifelong dear friends and her husband. And, you know, a lot of you have that friend that can just find your tickle bone and just work you. You know, know, that friend who they can just zero in on your sense of humor and just take you down. Well, we were sitting across from Dana's friend, and I was just watching her work Dana. And I saw saw one coming, and I grabbed my phone and went click and caught Dana just, just reared back, just laughing. That is from God. Every good aspect of it, the friendship, the nuances of it, the way humor operates differently when it's the first time you've known somebody versus somebody that you have decades of history with, just the goodness of getting it out, the funniness of seeing someone laughing. 
I, I told someone recently, I have now decided that I think one of my absolute favorite things in a fallen world is the sight of someone with the person that makes them laugh hardest laughing hardest. Because it's, it's like a break from all the, the weariness and the sadness. And it's from God. And He didn't have to put it in the world and He put it there. He put it in us. But to zoom the camera out a bit, again, this is coming on the heels of all this stuff in Romans. I mean, for any of us, I mean, Romans is really clear. We are very, very bad people. We bear God's image. We're amazing creatures. But that's the tragedy of it. The animals have not rebelled. And the planets have not rebelled. We rebelled. And we're the pinnacle of creation. And we lash out at Him and we lash out at each other. In the church, even, we we mistreat each other. We don't care about our neighbors. And God goes into the heart of people like us and He takes out a heart of stone. And He replaces it with a heart of flesh that will hear Him. And He enables a person to say, help. He enables a person to say, save me. And forgive me. And He does, gladly. Like He enables the person to ask for it, and then He, a- he answers what we ask. That's from Him. But the fact that there is any critical mass of people, or even one, in this room saying, apart from Jesus, I do not know God. A- apart from Jesus, I am not clean. But because of what He did for me, I am forgiven and accepted, and loved, and adopted, and I'm secure. That is from God. That is not from us. Through Him are all things. He's the means. Uh, You you probably have heard the term deism, and it's interesting sometimes when people come on really heavy about that this is a Christian nation, and we're getting away from our Christian roots. Certainly, there has been a Christian presence to some degree, from the beginning in the colonies and in the the establishment of our country. But there was also a pretty massive presence of deism. And if you remember this from high school or college or whatever, what is deism? Just generally, it was the view that there is a God. He does exist. He is the creator. And the universe is sort of like this wildly intricate clock that he made, and he wound it up, and he set it up on the mantle, and it's operating, and it doesn't really require him um, interacting with it personally or directly or being hands-on. It just, he's created it, but it does what it does now on its own. That's deism and is unbiblical. And you might think, well, that's a neat history lesson, but there's a sociologist named Christian Smith who, I should have fact-checked this, I think he's on faculty now at Notre Dame, and he did an extensive, extensive study of the real spiritual views like the real spiritual views, not professed, but actual spirituality of the rising adults, rising generation. And he said, overwhelmingly, it's a form of deism. And this is for people from Christian backgrounds, Jewish backgrounds, Muslim, even the nuns who really don't identify with any religious affiliation. Uh, the, the, the default mode is, I think there's a God, I think he made every, or it made everything, but not really personally involved in my life. And coming off all these unbelievable truths, Paul says, 
through Him are all things. Like contrast deism with, um, with this. This is from Psalm 104. Praising God for all these different things, the world and the earth and the mountains and all the big stuff. And then it says this. You cause... Now remember that part, all right? You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Over Christmas, some of our friends gave us a bottle of wine. And they told us, now, it, it costs like 12, it drinks like a 50. I'm not a wine connoisseur, so... We were glad. In fact, we stole a second bottle from them of the, of the same kind. And then, three weeks later, a very close friend of mine emails me and says, Hey, my wife and I are on this wine. You've got to try it. It, it, it costs like $12, and it drinks like a fit. And it was the exact same kind. Now, and if you're wondering, why, why are you telling us all this? Here, here's the deal. Why did that particular vintage end up that way? It's because Psalm 104 is true. That it's not just that grapes and vines and fermentation are from God, but He even caused that particular vintage from that particular vineyard on that particular year to turn out that way. It's not just that it's from Him, it's through Him. Here's how another writer in Scripture puts it. Um, this is, this is uh, from James. Every good and... Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And I love that. He says, every, not just every perfect gift, every good gift is from Him, coming down from the Father of lights. To Him are all things. He's the goal. I want to ask a question here because it may be something you have thought about before. I'd be sort of surprised if there are not multiple people who've asked this question. If we're going to have all this talk about everything's for God and God alone gets the glory and the universe exists for God, if a person were like that, we would think a person was an egomaniac. Why is it okay for God to make literally everything about Him? Why is that okay? If, if, you want, if you want real insight into that, read Jonathan Edwards. He reflected on this a lot. But let me give you a, a little, you know, Brian Habig version of it. If you love someone, and you do, you want them to have what's best. I mean, if you could have your way with the person you love the most, you want them, you'd want their heart and their mind to be full of what is most true and most real and most beautiful and is good. It's not just something beautiful but a little bit dangerous or something beautiful but it could have a little sinister edge to it. You'd want their heart to be full of what is true and beautiful and pristine good. And that's God. That is God. God wants people to know Him and see Him and worship Him and enjoy Him. Not because He needs it. He doesn't need anything. 
He doesn't need anyone. He has no deficiencies. He wants it because He loves people. He made us in such a way that our hearts... This came up in the confession of sin. We won't be satisfied with anything or anybody but Him. He wants us to be satisfied. The imagery He uses of knowing Him and being in a relationship is feasting, banquet, well-aged wine, festival. All things are to be to Him. Um, I met a lady at a nursing home right before Christmas and, and have actually gotten to visit her another time or two. And the first time I met her, I said, listen, if, if, I, if I got back out, is there anything I could bring you? And you know what she asked for? Bach. I'd like to hear sheep may safely graze and, and sleepers awake. Do you know what Bach wrote at the end of all his pieces? Masterpieces. Like transcend all generations, masterpieces. At the end of his pieces, he wrote SDG, stands for Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. If you like this piece, don't give glory to Bach. Give glory to God. Well, what do we do with this? Um, You know, it's, it's interesting to note that when famous people sort of take themselves down a notch, we like that. And I don't mean somebody that's through scandal or, you know, crime or something like that, but when a famous person sort of, they take themselves down a notch, we like it when we see a little bit of humility on their part. You know, with, with the popularity of the movie American Sniper, there's been a lot of attention on Chris Kyle. That's, he was the sniper. And, uh, in fact, the last couple of weeks I saw several people post about this, a clip from when he, not, not Bradley Cooper, the actor, but the actual Chris Kyle, before he was murdered, was on the Conan O'Brien show. And so Conan O'Brien's talking to him. I think the book had just come out, American Sniper. And um, every time... Chris Kyle would answer Conan O'Brien. He would say, yes, sir, and no, sir. You know, like from Texas, cowboy upbringing, Navy SEAL. And so he'd say, yes, sir, no, sir. And so at one point, Conan O'Brien said, um, you, you don't have to say sir to me. I, I'm a talk show host. And, and the studio audience laughed. And then Conan O'Brien, he put one hand up high and he said, you're here, I'm here. And it was funny at the moment, and then in light of what happened, um, Kyle's murder, it's, it's actually moving, you know, to watch that. Another example, Tobey Maguire, the actor that played uh, Peter Parker in the earlier Spider-Man movies. Even after he had become famous from the Spider-Man role, when he'd fly somewhere, he'd fly coach. And I read, I read an account of when he was on a flight one time, and just basically everyone around him in coach said, what are you doing here? This is coach. We're losers. You know? You're Spider-Man. Go get in first class. Like, we're, we're, we're putting you in first class. So, like, we like that sort of a sense of humility, a lowering of oneself with those who are famous. So, wow, you would think, wouldn't you, that if one, that from whom and, and through whom and to whom are all things, that if he lowered himself, that would be attractive. But here's the mystery in the Bible is that God sent His Son, who is God, 
God the Father sent God the Son from whom, through whom, to whom are all things, to lower himself and become a man. Still fully God, but fully man. And at the end of his life, essentially what happened was his entire Jewish context and his entire Gentile context turned to him and said, from you and through you and to you are nothing. And killed him. But here's the amazing thing about God, that through that evil thing, through that evil thing that we did, God unleashes, God makes possible all these things that are from Him and through Him and to Him. And if you want to learn more about that, please keep coming because this is what we talk about all the time. Um, At the ground level, what does that mean for us? Well, let's go back to what happened here. Paul's written this amazing stuff. He's about to get into, therefore, what does this mean for your life? Lots of applications, lots of particulars. But where did a changed life... What's the start? Is it just data? No. Is it just tell me what to do? No, it starts with worship. And I just say that to say this. This is extremely important. And and that's not said out of job insecurity. It's said because the Scripture makes it clear, we've got to keep doing this. We need to do it alone. Like Jesus says, in your closet with the door closed. But we need this. And, And there's actually a biblical reason why when we come together, we don't start out talking or or singing about what I'm going to do for God. Have you ever noticed that? We don't start off with songs about God. Here's how I'm going to respond to you. We start with songs about here's who God is. Glory be to God the Father. Glory be to God the Son. Glory be to God the Spirit. Three in one. Whether we agree or not, this is who He is. That's a bringing back to sanity exercise for all of us. And, and, and by the way, the, the, you're going to, your heart is going to hook into that the most if these things that Paul talks about in those first 11 chapters are real. Like if you really actually believe that we're bad and you really actually believe that, hey, good news, he loves bad people loves bad people. And when he sent his son and his son became a man, the most strained relationships were with the good people. And the bad people flocked to him and found love and hope and transformation. Then you'll worship if you, if you participate in that, in that story. But, um, but let me say this lastly. I, you know, you could be hearing all this and go, yeah, that's great, but look, here's where I live. I just, I'm in, I'm in an office all day I mean, I want to worship when I'm here, but I, I don't know how to connect the dots between this and uh, a payroll. This or, re, you know, submitting expenses for reimbursement. I, I want to end with what I think is a lovely example of how those two things can meet. Um, since we've covered wine, let's do beer now. Guinness, iconic Guinness beer. The, the man that put Guinness on the map, there were lots of breweries in Ireland, but the one who put Guinness on the map was Arthur Guinness. Not the original Arthur Guinness that started it, but his, uh, his descendant, Arthur, the second Arthur. 
Here's what the second Arthur Guinness wrote to his sons, the guys that would be running it, shortly before he died. Quote, The continued good account of our business calls for much thankfulness to Almighty God, while we humbly ask for the infinitely higher blessings of His grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely it becomes me to speak of the Lord's patience and long-suffering towards one so utterly evil and sinful, and to pray that I might be enabled through grace to live every hour under the teaching of the Holy Spirit, patiently abiding His time for calling me to that place of everlasting rest, the purchase of the precious blood of the Lamb of God for saved sinners. Uh, wow. Wow. So, if he's a guy that pretty uniquely influenced the DNA of the business, and this was what was going on between him and God, what did that do to Guinness? Scroll ahead several decades, and here's, here's an observation about Guinness in the 1920s. That's from, that quote was from the 1800s. Get this. A Guinness employee during the 1920s enjoyed full medical and dental care, massage services, be looking in the 2016 DPC budget for staff massages, stay with me, massage services, reading rooms, subsidized meals, a company-funded pension, subsidies for funeral expenses, educational benefits, sports facilities, free concerts, lectures and entertainment, and a guaranteed two pints of Guinness a day. (laughs) And it sounds like we're describing cutting-edge best practices from the Google campus or something. This is Guinness almost a hundred years ago. Why? And I would argue, I don't think it's hard, I don't think I have to argue, that when you have been touched by God's mercy... You extend mercy. When God has valued you, made you valuable, you value people. When God has been undeservedly, not just kind, but lavish to you, you can be undeservedly kind and lavish things on employees. It changes everything at a very real level, Monday through Saturday. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray for us. Not unto us, Father, not unto us, but to Your name we give glory. And for the person who is here this this morning and maybe has never really seen you this way before, would you enable him or her to see you really for the first time, that you are good, you are generous, you're the source of every good and perfect gift, but that maybe for the person who's known you for decades but needs to look again for the 10,000th time, would you turn us back towards you, would you give us changed hearts? Would you change the way we live? Because we've seen who you are, seen the bad news, and then seen the good news. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.